So many of the projects that we work on, if you're familiar with grant funding, you have to have a little bit of data already. You know, you kind of have to show them that you can get the work done. So philanthropy is a really great way for us to, or I guess our, our investigators, um, to look down a path that maybe they wouldn't have funding for directly. And so this is a way for us to say, okay, we have this idea. This is what we think it'll lead to. Um, so it's really kind of the, the startup side of what, and that's how I think of it at least um, in terms of the research, but it's also really great for patient care as well. We have a lot of really great programs that only exist because of donors. And so Connie can speak to that a little bit, but specifically our whole memory center, right, was a result of a donation. Um, we now have a 24-7 support line. Um, so if you are a patient of BAI, you can call any time of day um, with even a non-clinical question of, you know, my family member wants to drive, should I let them? Um, you can actually have someone call you back and, and work through those issues with you. Um, and those programs are really only made possible through philanthropy. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, where we are in the second part of a two-part interview with a healthcare innovator. We are interviewing Banner Health's Alzheimer's Institute's Imaging Program, a center of excellence at Banner Health University Medical Center, supporting the research goals of the Institute. And my guests are Connie Boker, the Director of Operations, and Jennifer Craig Mueller, the Director of the All of Us Research Program. Welcome and thank you for joining. So with radiochemistry, these tracers that they inject, when Jennifer talks about using your words carefully, we do have to be very careful about how we explain this because when you mention radiation, everybody, you know, that's kind of scary. But what our radiation safety officer emphasizes in educational material is just the injection of this tracer for a PET scan is equivalent to about the same radiation you would get if you went and got a chest x-ray or something. So it's not extraordinary and it's washed out of your body really quickly. So we have that and, and the radio tracers we that we use, most of these are actually considered what's called investigational compounds. They're not something that's used in the market. You know, oncology uses PET scans a lot because they can image um, tumors non-invasively. But our radio tracers are kind of unique in that they're targeting things like tau and inflammation and amyloid in the brain. And so they're not typically used in the clinical world. So what we have to do, because they're not readily available, is we have to make them ourselves. That's where our radiochemistry lab comes into play. And we have a really unique facility in that our research imaging um, has its own radiochemistry lab. So we can produce some of these tracers. Most of the ones that we produce have a half-life of 90 to 120 minutes, but we do have 
one that we produce that has a 20 minute half-life. So having a radiochemistry facility right next to our PET scanning facility is very advantageous. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so the, the people in that department are people like, you know, that have a PhD in radiochemistry, or they have a master's degree in nuclear medicine and have focused on radiochemistry. Again, it's a highly regulated area and there's a lot of rules. I mean, the FDA is the one who has to approve what we do. We're essentially a drug manufacturing facility. So it's like a clean room facility. And because we ship some of these radio tracers to outside entities, our people even have to be trained on like Department of Transportation rules with, you know, shipping hazardous materials and stuff. So they have to have these certifications. So it's just, there's a lot of specialized talent within the departments that that um, I oversee. And then, of course, we have these analysts who are all PhD and master level scientists who are versed in all kinds of different MATLAB programming and statistics. And I shake my head because I, I think, why do people like statistics? <laughs> but, but fortunately, we have a lot of people <laughs> who, who just love doing that kind of stuff. So, and they're just really smart people and, and they're such a pleasure to work with. They're just people who love the job that they're doing. And I think Jennifer will tell you one of the things I think that we like about working with BAI is not only because we've got, you know, such talented people, but we have nice people who work here. (laughs) Ones that like their job. You have to, huh? Well, I want to actually, in all seriousness, um, ask you know a couple more questions, but you know, it's interesting when you describe the facility, I mean, you guys can't just go into any building. You actually have to have a building specifically designed because you have radioactive materials. You have all of these imaging uh, pieces of equipment and you have to, you, you can't just find a building and go into it. And we can't move easily. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, in all of this that you guys are doing, you know, I just want to you know, circle back around that the goal is after all of these years of data, all of these um, non-clinical studies, but also the clinical studies that the whole point is to focus on early detection and prevention of Alzheimer's along with those that are having symptoms right now. But all of this is geared towards hopefully coming to a point where you can detect an onset, possible onset of Alzheimer's and somehow intervene and maybe slowing the process if nothing else. Actually, I'm going to read for you our three-part mission. And that'll kind of cut it. The first of the three-part mission is end Alzheimer's without losing another generation. Secondly, is set a new standard of patient and family care. The other is forge new models of collaboration in biomedical research. And so all of these things that we engage in from the memory center to the family and community support to the various types of research that we do all support that mission. Well, that brings me to the, my next question, because obviously if you have a family member that is going through this process and suffering from Alzheimer's, the BAI also, you know, you guys have a philanthropic and education and support system as well. Do you guys want to talk about that? I know you got some family and patient support teams, and I know that uh, there are some philanthropic endeavors as well. Jennifer, you want to start or? 
Yeah, I think um, to touch on the philanthropy a little bit. So many of the projects that we work on, if you're familiar with grant funding, you have to have a little bit of data already. You know, you kind of have to show them that you can get the work done. So philanthropy is a really great way for us to, or I guess our our investigators, um, to look down a path that maybe they wouldn't have funding for directly. And so this is a way for us to say, okay, we have this idea. This is what we think it'll lead to. Um, So it's really kind of the the startup side of what, that's how I think of it at least. in terms of the research, but it's also really great for patient care as well. We have a lot of really great programs that only exist because of donors. And so Connie can speak to that a little bit, but specifically our whole memory center, right, was a result of a donation. Um, We now have a 24-7 support line. Um, So if you are a patient of BAI, you can call any time of day um, with even a non-clinical question of, you know, my family member wants to drive, should I let them? Um, You can actually have someone call you back and and work through those issues with you. Um, And those programs are really only made possible through philanthropy. Yeah, that's got to be one of the hardest things, you know, as a child of a parent suffering and having to take away their independence. Yeah. And that actually speaks to this part of our mission that says set a new standard for patient and family care, because even though we have physicians, neurologists, psychiatrists, people who specialize in geriatric medicine and in dementia and Alzheimer's disease, you know, we also have nurse practitioners, we have social workers, we have support people who put together these programs and they work with not just our patients, but even our clinical trial patients to give you an example. One of the things that's important about a clinical trial is once you have a person enrolled in it, you want them to stay enrolled in it. So sometimes just retention of people within a clinical trial, you know, is helped along by these family and support services that we have. Because Alzheimer's disease and dementia is not just about the patient. It really can take a toll on family members, particularly the caregivers. So we want to really make sure that the caregivers have all the support that they need because that keeps people at home or keeps them out of the hospital. Or in the long run, what you know our model is trying to do is show that by having this elevated level of care, that we're really going to, and this is only important to Medicare, but, but that we're really going to reduce the healthcare costs of people with this devastating disease. And so there's all kinds of things. There's music therapy, there's arch therapy. We have people around the Valley who work with our team to have events at the Phoenix Art Museum, at the Mesa Art Center, at the Phoenix Symphony, the city of Scottsdale, the arts uh, folks there um, have things. I know in the past, I don't know if we're still doing this, but We were at the uh, Musical Instrument Museum involved in some things there. But we have a whole team of people who are continually thinking of, you know, events or support classes and things that can help not just the patients, but the caregivers or the patients and caregivers together so that they, it makes them feel more engaged uh, with, you know, their normal life. All of that stuff, you know, nobody reimburses for that stuff. So that's where, when Jennifer talks about the philanthropy a lot of these programs were initially funded through philanthropy. And then, you know, we have some talented people within those departments who they actually go after grant dollars um, from different organizations and that can support it. But very few of the things that they do that really support the, it's not just social, but it's the emotional, you know, Mm -hmm. aspects of what they're going through are actually reimbursed by insurance companies. So that philanthropy is great for our people to keep doing what they're doing. I'm excited to see where, you know, after you guys get more and more data, how that translates into different innovations that you can do and and try to help 
people through this process. And uh, I love the dignity of the care and, and the music therapy and all of those to try to help somebody through the process that has the symptoms and, and also the family, because I think it might even be, I don't know who it's hardest on, it just I think depends on the day. Yeah. And our team also, um, and Jennifer can talk more about some of the different types of cultures and stuff that are enrolled in, in some of her trials. But, you know, we want to make sure this is true in any kind of clinical trial. You definitely want to make sure you have a diversity of gender, of race, of ethnicity and stuff in any kind of trial to really make it worthwhile so that you're not leaving anybody behind. And we have people within that group who really focus a lot here in Arizona with our indigenous population, our Native American population, and they participate in a lot of these trials. And so you have to kind of approach them from a different perspective, which Jennifer could talk a little bit more about. And that's important to keep those people engaged in some of this so that we're helping everybody, not just mm-hmm. this select you know, group of people that are readily available for normal controls. <laughs> well, I don't think a disease like this discriminates. I mean, I think, every, you know, but it would be, but I, I do feel like it's interesting to see if, if there are certain genetic markers or genetic predispositions that would be interesting to, to learn over time. And that's what I think your question was kind of about innovation as well, or what's next for us. Right. Um, we actually received a, a large grant last year um, to kind of, I think, put all of this 20 years of research, uh, you know, to the test. So one thing we haven't necessarily mentioned about clinical trials at the moment, the brain imaging that we're, that Connie talked about, right, it might take, you know, five, seven years, let's say, to show that a drug is actually working and having an effect. Your brain is kind of the last piece of the puzzle that's really, you know, affected clinically, I would say, you know, or you can visualize it. Um, so we keep talking about these biomarkers um, and the blood tests and things like that. So our goal is to kind of have a cohort of people and show that you can look at changes within 12 months and 24 months. So if you imagine if you had a drug on the market or a drug that you were trying to test, if you could know within a year or two if it worked or not, um, that's really going to speed up the development of drugs in general. So we just started that project um, and hope to have it completed in the next couple of years. Um, but really, it's going to set a framework for re- research in the future, or that's the goal at least, right? To identify this blood marker changes within three months if your drug treatment is working. Um, And if you just imagine how much that's going to accelerate that research space. Um, So that's really, I think, the innovative idea that we're currently working on um, to really set, you know, statistical numbers, everything that goes into it to say, this this is what you need to show that your drug is working or not. So I think that's kind of our goal to make sure we're not losing that next generation as our mission says. That's exciting. Well, ladies, um, do you have anything else to add before we go into the Q&A? Not for me. All right. All right. So I'll, uh, I'll do you a question and then we'll go back and forth between you guys answering this. Uh, so Connie, what was your first job? Oh, what was my first job? Oh, you know, I, I actually think I, um, my freshman year of college, I worked as a cashier in a department store in the Midwest that isn't even there anymore. It was kind of like a Target, kind of a between a Target and a Kmart store, I guess. <laughs> that was my very first job. What about and you, Jennifer? I was a receptionist at a hair salon. Um, so it wasn't a very busy hair salon. So in high school, I just kind of got paid to do my homework because <laughs> it was it was really nice. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, what would you be doing for a living if you were not in your current position or the healthcare industry? So Jennifer, what, you can go first on this one. Um, I love crime shows. So if detective, <laughs> what it was like, you know, being a detective mirrored what they show you on TV and movies, I would love to be a detective. <laughs> I don't well, think- I always love how they solve a bit of mystery or a case in one hour. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I want. Like all the clues are right there and you just have to put it together. Um, so if that actually was how it was, I would love to do that. <laughs> I like that. Connie, what about you? You know, okay. So I can just tell you, and as you know, I did a little bit of a, I, I call it my midlife crisis where I got into commercial real estate for four years and I've done different things. Most of my career has been in healthcare, but I always tell people I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would love to be a rock star if I had a singing voice. <laughs> Unfortunately, maybe I could charge people to have me not sing. <laughs> uh, what or who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration? Um, well, I don't know if you know, Reese Witherspoon has a book club. Um, and so I'm currently making my way through through that list. Um, so I think it's, you know, not necessarily information or inspiration, but really like just a good avenue to kind of get other other things in your life. Um, so I just finished a book called The Sanatorium, uh, but highly recommend her book club if no one is, if you've not heard of it. Oh, that's nice. She has, um, she has a documentary too that she did. Oh, I haven't seen that. I don't, I'm not necessarily a Reese Witherspoon fan. It's just a nice way to get book recommendations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I hear you. So you don't read them halfway through and then put them down. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so they've all been great so far. I've finished everyone. Connie, what about you? So uh, a lot of my news, you know, is like as I'm going, you know, from here to there, is I really... I like listening to NPR for news because I feel like they're very balanced. It's it some of the news stations are either right or left politically, but I think they're really good. Um, you know, I've actually been like doing audiobooks lately and and kind of like it. So I've done a number of different audiobooks. I don't know. There's what was the one? Somebody was talking about it. Oh, have you have you uh, read or listened to Where the Crawdads Sing? That yes. was that was pretty good. That's a great book. But then there's other stuff, you know, I like a Nora Roberts, you know, book every now and then, or I know some people don't like him. It's not like, you know, fine literature, but Nicholas Sparks. is. Yeah. (laughs) So it's nice that the audiobooks are kind of nice because I can listen to them if I'm at the gym on the treadmill and, and, or when I'm walking my dogs or something. I love them. Yeah. I used to be able to read magazines when I was on the treadmill, but I can't see anymore that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah you can't it can't run with a lot of with reading glasses on very very well <laughs> what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care um i've gotten re- at me i've gotten really into yoga in particular um i think it's a nice way you can't take your phone in with you you know it's just kind of an hour to yourself of not you know being able to no one can connect with you um, and I also have two dogs. I'm actually getting a puppy tomorrow. So a third dog, but I think going on dog walks and like I said, leaving your phone at home, anything, you can, anytime you can disconnect and not check your email, I think is, is a really great self-care. I like that. And Connie, what about you? You know, I actually do different things. I mean, I, I have my dog walking, do some hiking now and then I would love to get back into yoga. I just, I haven't done it for a long time, but I think I I need to start doing that to get myself limbered up. But I, you know, I try to get to the gym and do some workouts. um, And then just, I like to travel too. So how's that going right now? 
Well, local travel. (laughs) (laughs) We have a great, we have a wonderful accessible places to get to from here. Yeah. Yeah. I I just had a friend in uh, last weekend and we kind of went from the South part of the state to the North part of the state, just going to different like little artsy communities and stuff. So that was kind of fun, but yeah, I I've decided that international travel really isn't on my radar right now. And so, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to planning some road trips, which I haven't done in years. So Uh, do you think leaders are born or trained? Jennifer and I were discussing that. (laughs) I think, I think both. I, I think and I don't know if it's born or, or raised, um, you know, to be uh, someone who, you know, not just somebody who's bossy, but somebody who actually isn't afraid to make decisions. And, you know, they have the confidence enough to not only use their own skills, but really be able to evaluate and encourage people around them to maximize their skills. So I think I think it's both. I think you you have certain innate you know, personality characteristics that translate to leadership. But I definitely think that some of it is learned. You have to be able to listen and figure out what's going around you and hopefully pick up some of those clues from good leaders. And I also think there's so many leadership styles. So whatever your personality is, I think you can find a way to lead and influence others that way. So I think, you know, the the born leaders are people that I think are more extrovert and, you know, kind of naturally want to be towards the front and, you know, the center of attention um, versus people who are maybe a little bit more introverted. I think there's still a place for them to be leaders. It just takes a little bit more time for them to like learn the different skills and how they, like I said, influence decisions that way. Absolutely. I think it takes both types. Uh, well, you guys, this has been a wonderful interview. I really appreciate your time. This, What you guys are doing over at the BAI is, is incredibly impactful and very exciting to see the, the results of how it can really change people's quality of life as they're, if they are susceptible to getting dementia or, you know, you can prevent it. It would, it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time with us. Thank you, Teresa. Yeah. We're, I'm, I'm, I always tell people I work here so I can be first in line when they come up with the treatment. (laughs) I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.